On today's episode, I get the latest update on the Omicron variant from Dr. Steve Kleibacher, PhD scientist. Welcome to the Empowered Podcast, where we bring you expert clinical perspectives on the latest health data and wellness trends. Each week, we'll cut through the noise and answer your unanswered health questions, helping you take control of your everyday well-being. PowerDX podcast is for general educational purposes only and is not medical advice. If you have any questions about your own health, please consult a healthcare provider. Visit the EmpowerDX Terms of Use webpage for the full podcast disclosure. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm Austin Alvarez, and I'm here with Dr. Steve Kleibacher, PhD with Eurofence. How's it going, Steve? It's going well today. How are you, Austin? I'm doing fantastic. And today I thought we would dive straight into the Omicron variant. So we're, we're deep in the pandemic right now, and you are uh, an immunologist, like a pro in the field. You developed the, the most sensitive COVID test in the United States or, or led the team that developed that particular test for PCR uh, for Eurofins, and we use it at EmpowerDX. And I wanted to hear from you from a science perspective Omicron variant, you know, what is it? Where did it come from? How did it start? Where, where did the Delta variant go? And what do we do about it? So where do we start, Steve? Well, yeah, maybe it's good just to start by talking about variants. We, You mentioned a couple that are on the, the, the tip of everyone's tongues right now, Delta and Omicron. Uh, many re may remember uh, back about a year ago when we were talking about the UK variant, which was since renamed the, the Alpha variant. Uh, so those are three that we know pretty well, and we've talked a lot about, uh, at least as a national conversation, international conversation. But behind the scenes, there are thousands, literally maybe even tens or hundreds of thousands of other variants wow. that never make the news. And so these are these are minor, what they are is minor sequence variations, so genomic sequence variations in the virus that may or may not be medically important. Um, the ones that we have seen, the UK, that is the alpha variant, the delta variant, and now the Omicron, those go from variants of interest in WHO and CDC's classification to variants of concern because they are Medically, they are medically important and medically different. Now, does variant of concern mean that maybe the vaccine is less effective against it or the symptoms are more severe, maybe the fatality rate's higher or something like that? Right. Those are two. The, the vaccines, the symptoms, uh, severity may be important. A couple others that make these variants of concern rise to, to, uh, to real, real importance is the transmissibility. In other words, how easily is it transmitted? And that was one of the big differences in, say, the Delta variant. It, it literally swept through most nations very rapidly and replaced the other circulating variants. And then the, the fourth aspect that makes these important is the effectiveness of treatments, primarily the monoclonal antibody treatments, the cocktails that are being uh, that have been approved through the EUA process right now. For example, with Omicron, there is some, uh, based on com uh, really on computer modeling, just to be clear, this is not demonstrated in people yet, but based on computer modeling, there is some concern that, that some of the monoclonal antibody treatments that have been approved through the EUA process may not work that well with, the, with patients infected with the Omicron. Interesting. Okay. So, and in terms of those um, monoclonal antibody treatments, are we talking about immunosuppressed people that have, you know, maybe their immune system isn't functioning properly? Or are we talking about this is aimed to launch to the greater masses? 
Yeah, so uh, both actually, the immunocompromised people are obviously at the highest risk, mm -hmm. uh, say for example, an organ transplant recipient, but the, the monoclonal antibody treatments have been used quite broadly. The challenge with using monoclonal antibody treatments is they're only really effective if they're used very early in the disease course. So once a patient is really ill, you know, it's a couple of days on a ventilator, for example, and, and really not doing well, uh, the monoclonal antibodies are, are, are not really as helpful as is in the earliest stages of disease. So it's tough to make that call, you know, right at the beginning, well, this patient's not doing too terribly, but, you know, let's go ahead and treat them with monoclonals. Um, they've been underutilized in that sense to some, to some people's uh, point of view. That makes sense. So then tell me about Delta versus Omicron. Where are we at in the U.S. right now? Right. So Delta is definitely still the major variant that's circulating in the U.S. So most of the new infections that we hear about in our, in our news cycle, those are Delta infections. Omicron appears to be gaining a foothold. It's been identified in something like uh, you know, around half the states of the U.S., but it, it does appear to have gained a foothold. So what, what the, in my opinion, the big unanswered question at this point is, will Omicron replaced Delta as the predominant variant in the U.S. And, and looking at other countries that are a little bit ahead of us in the, in the Omicron wave, it's not really clear yet. What we do know about Omicron is it is more transmissible mm. than Delta. Now I say that we know, I say we know that it, the, the science does take a little bit of time to reach a point of certainty, but the early studies do point to increased transmissibility associated with Omicron. In other words, it spreads more easily and more rapidly in a community than Delta. And do you think it's spreading the same way though? Is it respiratory yeah. droplets or aerosol? Yeah. Okay. I do want to point out though, that Delta in UK and the original SARS strain that we talked about way back in early 2020, they're all highly transmissible. They're, they're easily transmitted. So when you say something's twice as transmissible, yeah, you, that is significant, but you're already dealing with a raging fire, if you will, something that's spreading quite rapidly. So an increased transmissibility of twofold is not, in my mind, it's that's not the game changer as mm -hmm. say, for example, you know, something that spread a hundredfold yeah, more rapidly. That makes sense. So then compared to like common colds, maybe even coronavirus colds and the flu, how transmissible is Delta and Omicron? Yeah, they, they're probably a little bit above flu and, and, and certainly above a common cold mm -hmm. virus. So thinking about common cold viruses, that's a really good way to benchmark our, our thought process here. We've never had a single common cold virus sweep across the United States or any country for that matter in a season. They're just not that transmissible. Uh, not as transmissible as um, as something like the Delta variant. So this is unheard of potentially. So you're saying common to have what hundreds, tens of hundreds of strains of a particular cold virus, and then that some will start to pick up in different pockets of the United States and the world, but then yeah. ultimately it's never a single variant of the cold virus that then takes over. Right. But you did mention flu, for example, and thinking back to 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic strain, that virus was again, highly transmissible and circulated the globe probably on the, the, the order of, of magnitude, the speed that we've seen with, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID virus, the, depend, regardless of which variant you're talking about. Now, the big difference between 2009 H1N1 and um, the SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID pandemic is that uh, actually there were two. One is that we had some pre-existing immunity because a lot of people were vaccinated. And two, it just didn't cause that severe disease. It, it, um, it's, it, it wasn't hospitalizing people in great numbers. It wasn't putting 
huge numbers of people on ventilators and, and stressing out our, our um, critical care system like SARS has. Yeah, that makes sense. So changing gears a little bit, can we talk about the actual Omicron molecule? So how is it different? Let's get nerd level, right? I've, yeah. I've read some things <laughs> about the spike protein being different um, and mm-hmm. lots of different mutations. So what are all the differences and, and how do they play into Omicron being of concern? So the different, there, there are, I think, 70 some odd, and I'm sorry, I don't know that exact number, but it's somewhere in that range, 70 or some odd significant mutations, uh, genomic mutations in the genome of the Omicron variant that are then translated into protein differences. And that's where the true importance is to to us in terms of vaccines, for example. So we were, those of us who have been vaccinated, were vaccinated with the original strain of SARS-CoV-2 and and, and not even, you know, the vaccines haven't yet been updated for these new variants. And so when when we're vaccinated, our bodies react to specific parts of the proteins, not the whole protein, but specific parts of the protein. And so while a lot of those are shared between the previous strains of SARS and even the original strains of SARS with with Omicron, there are some differences. So the immune response is, is actually a collective effort of a lot of different antibodies, a lot of different uh, cells, we call them T cells in our in our bodies. And if you think of a, of a team of players, if, if you have half of that team fall down and can't take the, the next play than the next uh, part of the game, then of course your team is going to be weaker. And at some point, if you don't have enough team members on the field, thinking again of antibodies and T cells as team members, then, then the virus can win. The virus when the virus wins, that usually means a patient goes into the hospital and gets very sick and sometimes, sadly, of course, uh, succumbs or dies to their illness. So what the differences between Omicron and the original SARS-CoV-2 just serves to reduce the number of antibody types and uh, T-cell clones is what we call them, uh, antibody clones and T-cell clones that are actually in the fight against this disease. That makes sense. And so is... Is it of more concern because it's a different functional spike protein altogether, meaning the ability for Omicron spike protein to unlock our cells or get access to our body and start to multiply is, is much easier uh, because mm-hmm. it, our body doesn't necessarily recognize it? It recognizes, uh, let's just say, part of it. Okay. So from past infection, so I think, I think one of the best um, illustrations of, um, of how this works is from some early results dealing with the vaccines. Um, I believe the one I'm thinking of specifically was the Pfizer vaccine. And so thinking back to the original um, vaccine studies, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine paper showed that even one shot of the original vaccine protected against the circulating SARS strains at that time. Not perfectly, not as good as two, not as good as the original shot and the booster, but um, go back a year. <laughs> and that was that was pretty darn good. Even after one shot, you had some good protection. So Delta comes along and, and the simple story, not to oversimplify it, but making it simple, the, the, the two shots then really that provided pretty solid protection against Delta. And so what some of the very recent studies have shown, and again, science does take a while to reach a point of conclusiveness, but what some of the recent studies have shown is that with Omicron, really now we're talking, you need that booster to have great protection. So now that's three shots. Um, so that, that helps, I think, just illustrate that it's, a, it's really a building block process, if you will. And if you have a perfect match, 
perfect match between your vaccine strain and your challenge strain or your infecting strain, you know, you're really solid with this vaccine, but the amount of changes you introduce therefore increases the number of, of in this case, vaccines or boosters that you have to get. Um, and, and it, and it uh, you know, it's not out of the question. I read something uh, this morning that said, you know, we may be looking at another round of boosters at some point. Now, I also believe that the vaccine manufacturers are likely to update mm-hmm. the vaccine so that they better match the current strains that are circulating. That makes sense. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds exactly like what we do with flu every year, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The, the WHO looks at the circulating flu strains and said, okay, here's the formula we want for this year's vaccine. So it's, it's, there's some good commonality here and some proven effective methods to help us you know, move through this pandemic. Absolutely. And so the science of the vaccine, so I, I'm maybe just talking about Pfizer, Moderna, mRNA. So is it essentially telling the body to produce the spike protein that is identical to the original strain? right? Mm-hmm. And, and then your body creates this immune system response, right? And you're saying that ideally, we would look at Delta and then more specifically now Omicron, if it does kind of beat out Delta and create a, an mRNA vaccine or other types that codes for that specific blend of S protein yes. that then makes is much more protective against that particular strain. Is that right? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's perfect. I think what the challenge is, is that these um, new variants are emerging rapidly and and somewhat unpredictably. And so you can um, just think of the logistical challenge of, of reformulating the vaccine and then fielding that reformulated mixture. It's it's not a one week or a two week process. It's, it's a months long process. Just saying that, is an incredible accomplishment of science. I just want to pause and, and, and give a shout out sure. to where we are as a, as a you know, scientific community here. But, but nonetheless, it, it would be ideal if we settled into a dominant strain that we didn't think was going to change rapidly over the ensuing weeks and months. That may, that may not be possible for a while. And there may, be, there may continue to, to be numerous strains circulating, in which case, the vaccine manufacturers can make a cocktail. So they could, they could have an mRNA representing Delta. They could have an mRNA representing Omicron and they could have an mRNA representing whatever's after Omicron mm-hmm. and put it in the same mix as a formulated as a cocktail. Now, of course, uh, just to be clear, that would all have to be reviewed and approved by the FDA under their emergency use authorization program. But sure. I think that that is certainly one possibility that we'll see in the future. How often do you think it should be cycled though? So what's the what's the cycle yearly or even more so than for for flu right now? So if if the companies are producing vaccine that is specific to a flu variant, a flu strain, how often are they doing that for flu? And how often do you expect we'll need to do that for uh, for COVID nineteen and all of its variants? What would be a like a let's get ahead of it to at least to at some point get out of a pandemic and get enough people vaccinated with the, the latest um, variations? So with flu, we have a, an interesting phenomenon that I'm not sure we'll get with, um, with SARS-CoV-2. I don't know for sure, but let's just say I kind of doubt it. And that phenomenon is, is that the, the Southern hemisphere flu season, so flu is highly seasonal. It, it's in the cold season of the year. Um, SARS-CoV-2 so far hasn't been seasonal. That's why I'm a little pessimistic. But with flu, we have the Southern hemisphere flu season, which is in our summer. 
And the, the WHO CDC can, can look at the, the Southern hemisphere flu season, help predict what's next for the Northern hemisphere. And then of course they can look at the Northern hemisphere flu season and look what's next, predict what's next for the Southern hemisphere. So towards the end of the Southern hemisphere flu season, April, uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, uh, uh, June, July, um, will, we'll, I'm sorry, the beginning of the Southern Hemisphere flu season, WHO will look and say, okay, this looks like it's going to be the dominant strain. And so that helps guide the, the formulation for the Northern Hemisphere. That's about a six month process. Um, I think that's, you know, that's probably comfort time. I think for going, going to, to SARS-CoV-2 for a minute, I think we can probably reduce that to say three months, just being optimistic and a little bit, uh, a lot of guesswork here on my part for certain, but um, I think I think that's the type of timeline cycle that we'll need to prepare for this. And then looking at uh, the epidemiology worldwide is, is, is how I think we're going to try and make those predictions. So at the beginning of the, the podcast here, I talked about the fact that Omicron is, is a bit ahead of the, the uh, U.S. in terms of its incursion into places like South Africa. So the, the, the U.S. or other countries, Europe, wherever, can look at the early introductions of something like Omicron and use that as a, as a basic guide to what probably will occur when it reaches our country or, say, a European country or an Asian country or something like that. Well, wow, that's unheard of. Yeah, that's all we really have to go on, yeah, unfortunately. Wow. So it's interesting, though. I mean, has, it, has that ever been done before where you're mapping the epidemiological behavior of of a single strain or multiple strains of a single virus in other countries that to then try and map out where where, where we think it's going to go and then are, are we using that data to then create vaccines ahead of the game on a three-month basis is that what you're yeah implying? yeah the three months would be the unprecedented part again sure. that's pretty much what we do with flu, just in terms of identifying the strains at least. And I think, I think epidemiology in general has long used the idea that, um, that you can look at the characteristics of, a, of, a, of an epidemic within a country and, and help make predictions what'll help guide, say, uh, mitigation, vaccination strategies in other countries who are fortunate not to get hit by that first wave. Of course, it's always bad for the country with the first introduction. And thinking back to, I hate to keep using the example of 2009 H1N1, but the US was the first wave of that pandemic. And, and I think the, the lessons learned from the US um, helped other countries prepare for it, at least. They could, they could sharpen their diagnostics. Um, they could prepare their vaccines because we knew it was an H1N1 strain. Um, and, and those are the types of um, benefits that we, that we gain from a global epidemiological effort, which is based upon sharing of, of key information. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So let's shift to testing. The biggest question I think everybody has is, does the current PCR test and does the current antigen test available to us detect the Omicron variant effectively? Nearly all do, nearly all do. Um, the the Eurofins is still perfect in that regard. There, there are some examples of tests that have what they call dropout of, of the S gene target. And so just to, a little refresher on tests, it was anybody who had developed viral PCR assays um, with any level of experience 
predicted that we were going to have genetic change of the virus as the pandemic uh, matured or went through its stages, various stages. So we, we all at the beginnings looked at trying to identify conserved regions. And, and another really important strategy, conserved regions so that the tests continue to work even if mm-hmm. the virus changed. And another strategy was to develop multi-target assays so that if one target changed, you, you still have a, a backup, if you will. Now, not all tests were done with this in mind, but the majority were, and I think all the good tests were. So with Omicron, um, there is one group of tests, the uh, tests that detect the S gene uh, that are, are having dropout. So the S gene uh, signal from the test, the S gene result from the test is a false negative. Mm. So Omicron's present, but the S gene is negative. Uh, but I think as far as I know, the, all of those tests that are having the S gene dropout of the result also have other targets that are positive. So now if you get an, an N protein gene, which is another common target. If you get an N protein gene positive result and an S protein negative, that's actually a reasonable fingerprint of the Omicron. It's not, of course, not perfect. Sequencing is still the the perfect way to identify a variant, but it gives you an an idea that, yeah, this is probably uh, going to be Omicron. Now, we saw that same scenario with the UK variant. The UK variant the alpha variant, that is, I, I should stop using country names, <laughs> but the alpha variant also had S gene dropout. And so that was a convenient, easy, quick way to say, ah, I think this is probably the alpha variant. So we've seen that play out before. It actually does work relatively well. The only downside is that now that instead of two targets, maybe you just have one target, or in case of three targets, you now only have two targets. So your, your test is a little closer to breaking, but still not broken yet uh, for some of these tests. But just to reiterate, most tests are still fully detecting the Omicron variant. It's only a subset, a subset that had an S gene target that are in trouble. Gotcha. Okay. So, and and you said that Eurofins, which is in, in PowerDX, is using Eurofins test, is able to detect every single variant known. Right. So we've looked at over four million sequences. And to date, there's no reason to think that we would miss any of the strains, either the ones that we all know about, hear about, um, Delta, Omicron, Alpha, the, the others that are just variants of interest that um, the CDC, WHO continue to watch. And then there's a bunch of strains, as, as I said, that nobody's ever heard of because they're not even variants of interest. They're just known. They just We just know they're variants. And so, so far, the, the test is holding firm. But it, just to, to be clear, we continually monitor that. Mm-hmm. And at the first sign of trouble, it's uh, fortunately a very straightforward, not easy and not, not, uh, not, not always as quick as we'd want it to be, but it's a very straightforward process to, to quote unquote, fix the assay or come up with a version two. Not unlike the idea of coming up with new vaccine versions mm-hmm. as the, as the, the, the variants um, emerge and, and change over time with the, um, with the pandemic. Now, Steve, how long does it take to adapt an existing PCR test at Eurofence to then adjust potentially for a variant that may not be detected in most PCR? Right. So that would take on the order of a couple of weeks, two to okay. three weeks. It's fast. And, um, yeah, it, it's fast. Now, the, 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 the part that would take the most time would be in uh, getting the EUA approval. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, the FDA has, has been a, a tremendously helpful to work with in that they will, as long as you've submitted your data, and they'll do an initial review, and um, if they find nothing glaringly wrong, they'll, they'll allow you to run that better test 
while they thoroughly review the the data that you've submitted. So there's no perfect system. There's no perfect uh, answer to any of these very tough questions. But I I do think that the FDA has come up with an an enormous, uh, tremendous, and very beneficial response, both to to tests, as we're talking about, and to vaccines, as we've talked about. I I, I couldn't be more pleased with um, with the current state of that process. Yeah, that's amazing. Well done. In terms of next steps... Um, if anyone does need a PCR test, it is available at empowerdxlab.com for consumers, and that is using your FINS assay, um, most sensitive to date um, of all assays in the United States, according to the FDA. And you can go to the website, overnighted to your house Monday through Friday, test yourself with a quick nasal swab, shallow, and then send it back to the lab and get results within 48 hours of the lab receiving your uh, your swab. And so please uh, do continue to test um, as often uh, as needed. For our listeners, I'll put in the show notes links to empowerdxlab.com to the COVID test, and then also where to find the B2B next steps if you're, if you're interested in getting bulk testing or regular testing for your organization. So, hey, Steve, I, I really appreciate your time today. You're you're a very smart guy. And so it's great to just pull out all of your your knowledge on developing new tests, vaccines, variants, and you know what do we do next? So super appreciate the time. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Austin, anytime. I love talking about viruses. I wish it was under happier circumstances, but that's not the way viruses roll. They tend to make us miserable and then we talk about it. That's right. Well, I appreciate it, Stephen. Until next time, um, have a fantastic day. Thank you. Thanks, you too, Austin. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Empowered Podcast, your trusted advisor for all things health and wellness. For more information on how you can take control of your health, visit EmpowerDXLab.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Until then, stay empowered. Empowered.